I felt my body shutting down. I tried to yell out for help. You know, help wouldn't come out. I knew the moment the bullet hit my neck that Ron got me. The abuse and the threats subjected by Heather Grossman, who you just heard from, by her ex-husband Ronald Samuels, culminated in rifle shots in broad daylight in the middle of a busy intersection in Boca Raton. Saturday marks the 20th anniversary of that shooting. Grossman is a quadriplegic, and Samuels is serving a life sentence in prison. I'll discuss that case and much more coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll talk to News Journal legal reporter Frank Fernandez about the jury selection challenges in the trial for murder defendant Luis Toledo, a former street gang member charged in the slayings of his wife and her two children. If convicted, Toledo faces the death penalty. I'll also discuss last Thursday's execution of convicted killer Michael Lambrix, who was sentenced to death 32 years ago after jurors found him guilty of killing two people near Fort Myers. Lambrix was the second inmate put to death by the state of Florida since it resumed executions in August. Later, in our Only in Florida segment, I'll talk about the sentencing of a former South Florida plastic surgeon who is returning to prison for performing illegal, as well as shoddy, buttocks and penile surgeries in Miami. My guest for that segment will be Miami Herald reporter David Ovalle, who described to me how regularly these crimes occur in that part of the state. And finally, in our Looking Back segment, I'll discuss the 2007 shooting in Boca Raton that left a mother of three paralyzed. Her ex-husband, Ronald Samuels, wound up convicted in that shooting six years later. The victim, Heather Grossman, survived two abusive marriages and is now a crusader for victims of domestic violence. My special guest for that segment will be Boca Raton City Commissioner and former mayor, Steve Abrams. I'll talk about the Toledo murder trial and the Lambricks execution after the break. On Monday, a jury is expected to be paneled in the trial of Luis Toledo, the Deltona man charged in the slangs of his wife and her two children four years ago this month. The 35-year-old Toledo is charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. The victims were Yesenia Suarez, age 28, and her kids, 8-year-old Michael and 9-year-old Talia. Their bodies have never been found. The trial was relocated from Volusia County to St. Johns County to ensure that the jury pool was not tainted by the intense media exposure of the case. Authorities said Toledo murdered the three victims on October 23, 2013. The killings happened hours after Toledo showed up at Suarez's workplace in Lake Mary, slapped her in the face, and then drove away. 
Detectives said he was fuming over news that Suarez was having an affair with one of her co-workers. Jury selection began Monday, October 2nd. It's not expected to wrap up until today. Typically, jury selections in felony cases last less than a day, but they tend to go on for multiple days in death penalty cases, for which the panel is increased from six jurors to 12. Three alternates are also being chosen for this one. Frank Fernandez, legal reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal, has been covering the Toledo case since the outset. For at least the rest of this month, he'll be attending and reporting on the trial in St. Augustine, located between Daytona and Jacksonville. He talked to me about the challenges attorneys have faced selecting this jury. So the biggest issue has been that this is a month-long trial, and a lot of people are unable to leave their jobs for a month because a good number of them said they wouldn't be paid for a month off of work. Some said they would lose their job. One man said he would lose his house. The other issue has been child care. Some people have said, you know, I've got children I've got to take to school. I've got to, my husband or my wife uh, have a job and I take care of the children when they're working. And so there's no one to take care of the kids. Um, that's been another big issue. The biggest one, though, has been people are not able to take off a month from work because they're not going to get paid. Uh, a couple of people said that they had weddings planned. One woman was going to be married at the end of the month. Another woman, her son, is going to be married early next month. Both said they would be very distracted if they had to be in this trial that might interrupt their plans for those weddings. Uh, but the biggest issue, as I said, has been employment and the lack of pay for being in a month-long trial. The selected jurors should brace themselves for a long and at times emotional trial. There will be a mountain of circumstantial evidence presented by the state, but some forensic evidence is expected to be presented too, even though the victim's remains were never recovered. Blood spots on a truck mat Toledo is suspected of discarding in an apartment complex trash bin was recovered by law enforcement. That blood was matched to Talia and more of her blood was found on one of the black Timberland boots that was found in a plastic bag that Toledo also discarded. Most of the girl's blood was found in the master bedroom of her Deltona home, but no other blood splatter was found during the investigation. Toledo's nickname is Simi. He was known as King Simi when he was the third highest ranking member of the Latin Kings gang in Florida. A legal expert quoted in one of Fernandez's stories last week said any case that doesn't include a victim's body gives the defense a serious edge. A body gives detectives vital information from the cause of death to when the victim was killed. The same expert told Fernandez there have been less than 500 no-body trials in the U.S., dating back to the early 1800s. Decisions by the Florida Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court have changed the game as far as death penalty trials go. Those courts ensured that a death penalty recommendation from a 12-panel jury must be unanimous. Fernandez told me that opinions varied among those in the jury pool on whether they could make a death penalty recommendation. It's kind of evened out, really. Uh, one juror said she was very religious and it wasn't her place to judge even, 
even the guilt portion, let alone the death penalty portion if he is convicted. Another lady said that if he was guilty, then he should absolutely get death because there's no reason taxpayers should uh, pay to keep him alive for 40 or 50 years. Another woman today broke down and started crying when she was being questioned about the death penalty. And she finally said, no, there's no way I would vote for death. And she started crying, uh, which was very dramatic in the courtroom. But it has been kind of even in that regard. At the time this podcast was recorded, jury selection was expected to conclude Monday afternoon, and jurors would be given Tuesday off to get their affairs in order. The trial will kick off Wednesday morning with opening arguments. To keep track on the progress of the Toledo trial in St. Augustine, follow Frank Fernandez on Twitter at FrankFFF. Six days before jurors hear opening arguments in the Toledo case, the state of Florida executed only its second inmate since it restarted executions in August. Michael Lambrix was put on death row in 1985 at the age of 24. At that time, the rock band The Police were still together, and a postage stamp was 22 cents. Medically discharged from the U.S. Army, Lambrix received a government disability check every month at the prison in Stark for $133 until his death. Lambrix lived inside a six-foot by nine-foot cell for 32 years of his life. Six governors were elected during that span. The last, Governor Rick Scott, signed Lambrix's death warrant in 2015. Last year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Florida's death penalty sentencing system was unconstitutional, so his execution was postponed. But on Thursday, he died by lethal injection. Born in California and raised by an alcoholic father, Lambrix moved as a boy to Florida. When he became old enough, he enlisted. After Lambrix's army career ended, he wound up back in Florida and in no time found himself in trouble with the law. In 1980, he was sentenced to two years in prison after writing a worthless check to a lawn and garden store while on probation in Hillsborough County. He walked away from a work release detail in Lakeland and ran off to Glades County with his girlfriend, Frances Smith. On February 6, 1983, Lambrix and Smith met a couple at a tavern and invited them to his rented mobile home on a ranch near LaBelle in Hendry County. The two couples drank and ate spaghetti. Lambrix killed Clarence Moore Jr. and Alicia Bryant later that night. He and Smith buried their bodies in a shallow grave. Lambrix has always said Moore strangled Bryant and he beat Moore to death with a tire iron in self-defense. He also said he never reported the deaths because he was a wanted fugitive after leaving that work detail in Lakeland. But Smith testified at Lambrix's trial. She said Lambrix returned to the mobile home after leaving with the couple and his clothes were covered in blood. He and Smith finished eating their spaghetti and then buried their bodies. When Lambrix was arrested months later, he was working as a greeter at a haunted house in Orlando. His first trial ended in a hung jury, but he was retried, convicted, and sentenced to death. Before that second trial, prosecutors offered him a deal 
plead guilty to second-degree murder and serve 22 to 27 years in prison, which meant he would have been a free man while still in his 40s. But he refused the deal. As far back as 1997, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Lambrix's death sentence by a 5-4 to four margin. Days before he was set to die, Lambrix told reporters that Thursday was not going to be an execution, but an act of cold-blooded murder on the part of the state. In court documents, Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi stated that it was finally time for the sentence for these brutal murders to be carried out. Coming up, the story of a Roe cosmetic surgeon in South Florida who botched two medical procedures and found himself back in prison. After penile and buttock surgeries that he performed on two patients went wrong, former South Florida plastic surgeon Mark Schreiber is returning to prison. As part of his sentencing agreement, Schreiber will spend 44 months behind bars on two counts of practicing medicine without a license. When he gets out, Schreiber will be required to pay $145,000 in restitution to the victim of the butt implant. Schreiber faced more prison time, but the second victim, the one who had his male parts mutilated, didn't want to cooperate because he was too embarrassed to come forward. Miami Herald reporter David Ovalle covered Schreiber's sentencing last week. Here he is describing to me some of the grisly details of one of the patient's injuries. What happened was there was a, a, a man who got a penis enlargement from another illegal doctor in a warehouse in, uh, in Hialeah, and that surgery turned out to be uh, really bad, and the guy was experiencing some complications. So um, the illegal doctor ended up calling Dr. Mark, as they called him, um, who came down to Miami to the, to the warehouse in Hialeah and ends up you know, doing sort of an additional surgery to try to fix the first bad one. But then after that... Uh, and ended up being, I think he did it for like a thousand dollars, you know, according to the to the cops. So when the guy goes home and he's, you know, kind of kind of getting out of the uh, the stupor of the surgery, um, you know, his, his bandages are soaked in blood, and his, you know, and his penis is, is basically mutilated, is the way it was described in the court documents. So he ends up sending uh, text message pictures to Dr. Mark, and Dr. Mark, you know, tells him to take two popsicle sticks and try to kind of like tie it together to keep it in place, and that ended up not working, and then the guy ends up, uh, keeps calling Dr. Mark, and then ultimately um, Schreiber just keeps ignoring his calls. In what ways the man's pipe is still functioning remains a mystery, due to his decision to not come forward. However, prosecutors said in court that the victim is still suffering from complication from his surgeries. The butt implant patient, Ovalle told me, got in touch with Dr. Mark at an illegal clinic in Miami, which is commonplace in the Magic City. Dr. Mark, who used to be a licensed doctor, has been under fire for his surgical performances since 1998, when Florida's health department placed the Palm Beach County doctor on probation after he botched a surgery on another male patient that resulted in the patient's death. Four years later, he came under more scrutiny when a 73-year-old man, a well-known developer in the area, 
died of a heart attack two days after he had a neck lift performed by Dr. Mark. In 2005, after several patients came forward to complain about his work, Dr. Mark's medical practice was headed down the tubes. A woman also came forward to complain he touched her inappropriately during a surgery. Eventually, he was forced to give up his license. He continued to practice medicine and wound up getting sued and imprisoned for two years. He was released from prison in 2010. After his release, Dr. Mark performed injections in the now-defunct Bella Beauty Spa, where hundreds of women were known to have had their butts injected with misbranded and illegal silicone, according to Ovalle's story in the Herald. The clinic was owned by Maribel Jimenez, who herself was sentenced to six years in federal prison for importing the silicone from Colombia. One of her employees also was sentenced to four years and eight months for her role in the illegal activity. South Florida has long been known to be a place where cosmetic procedures can be done cheaply and illegally. The high-risk, low-reward culture of black market silicone injections gained notoriety in South Florida in 2013 when a popular Spanish-language radio personality, Betty Pino, died of complications from a procedure done by another doctor to remove the substance from her buttocks. The media reported that the 65-year-old DJ died from sepsis caused by a bacterial infection related to her surgery. While in a coma, doctors were forced to amputate her hands and feet in an effort to save her, but they couldn't. A month ago, authorities in Miami-Dade County dropped a manslaughter case against another rogue surgeon from Venezuela who was suspected of giving silicone butt injections to a woman who later died. Authorities said the clinic suspected of being involved in that case was run by a porn star by the name of Vanessa Luna. Luna has so far avoided prosecution. The doctor in that case still pleaded guilty to a lesser crime involving the same victim, and he was sentenced to a year in jail. He'll be deported back to Venezuela once his time is served. Not only is Miami a popular spot for legal and illegal cosmetic procedures, it's also used as a springboard by people who wish to travel to places like Colombia or Venezuela, where cosmetic surgeries are cheaper and involve substances that are banned in the United States. But for those wanting to remain in Miami for an injection, hiring somebody like Dr. Mark to perform such a procedure is not difficult, as Avaye explained to me. Some of it, of course, is going to be word of mouth. Um, of course, in Miami, it's a very uh, it's a very common thing, and culturally, um, you know, you have a lot of people from Colombia and Venezuela where it's very it's very accepted over there. So you get people from there who come here to do procedures. But some of it, honestly, is just you go into these sort of beauty spas that advertise for it. So um, you know, I've written about a bunch of different ones that are you know sort of labeled as beauty spas, and you can go and do massages, and you do uh, you know different types of treatments and they will advertise for them there and they don't do them there or they don't have people on the premises that do it directly but they sort of arrange it so there is some sort of veneer of authenticity 
but for a lot of sort of people on the lower socioeconomic uh, spectrum of Miami, they believe it's legitimate, and they believe that these substances that they're injecting into their butt are real, uh, are real safe, and um, and oftentimes they are not. So it's it's sort of a mixed bag. Some of it's people doing it in their living rooms, and some of it's being done in these spas under the the guise of uh, legitimate medicine. The reasons are numerous as to why this practice is so popular in and around Miami. It's a big phenomenon here for a variety of reasons. Some of it's cultural. You have a lot of people from Venezuela and Colombia who are um, over there. It's a very widely accepted thing, and it's sort of this pursuit of, of beauty um, that kind of bleeds over from, from those countries here. Um, and, of course, it's, it's Miami, you know. It's, it's, it's nip-tuck city, you know. It's people, sort of everyone chasing that, that ideal image of, of the, the Latin bombshell, you know. And um, so, but there's different, there's different ways to go about it you know you have these sort of beauty beauty spas and then you have you know the people who who are doing it underground and for a lot of those cases the sort of guys is that well you know so-and-so was a doctor in cuba or so-and-so was a doctor in colombia or did these procedures in venezuela so there's actually a lot of a lot of plastic surgery tourism here so we've had a couple cases of women who died in legitimate plastic surgeon um offices who were from kansas city who were from Michigan or the Midwest somewhere, um, and so it's sort of Miami has become the hub of not just legitimate plastic surgeries gone wrong, but also illegitimate ones. And so it's a little of, of everything. And I think if you're if you're in the market for uh, an enhancement on your butt or on your on your chest or anything like that, I think uh, you know Miami is the place to go. Coming up. We'll look deeper into a murder-for-hire plot 20 years ago in Boca Raton that did not go according to plan. On October 13, 1997, a 31-year-old Heather Grossman and her new husband, John Grossman, were on their way to having lunch. They were stopped at a red light at which time Heather bent down to grab something out of her briefcase. Both were oblivious to the green Ford that had pulled beside them. A bullet shot through the window and penetrated Heather's spine. Another bullet struck her husband's chin. John's wounds were superficial, but Heather's injuries were far more severe. She died at the scene, but paramedics brought her back to life. To this day, Heather is paralyzed from the neck down. She uses a breathing tube. Her oldest child was eight, and her twins were six, and they were very nearly left with just one parent, one capable of murder, or at least paying for it. It was while Heather was in the hospital clinging to life that her ex-husband, Ronald Samuels, filed a request in court to obtain custody of his three children. Detectives learned that Samuels was the ringleader of a very brazen assassination attempt, one that involved him hiring drug addicts to kill his ex-wife. He did so, according to authorities, because he resented the woman who left him, collected child support from him, and had custody of their three kids. Years afterward, Heather, confined to a wheelchair and needing 24-hour care, had to escape another abusive relationship. More on that later. Heather grew up in the Midwest and was a cheerleader in Minnesota. 
She was a striking blonde who got a job as a flight attendant, and on one flight in particular, she elicited the attention of a business owner, Ron Samuels. He was 17 years older than her, and he was smitten. Heather did not give him her phone number at the end of the flight, but through persistence, Samuels found a way to reach her. The pair dated, then married, and settled in Northwest Florida. They had three kids together, but Samuel's behavior was putting a strain on the marriage. He was abusive and controlling. Sometimes he threw objects at her. Another time, he picked her up and slammed her against a wall. He also held the barrel of a gun to her head and told her that if she ever left him, he would kill her. She left him anyway and filed for divorce in 1992. Heather's story has been told numerous times in newspapers, on NBC's Dateline, and on CBS's 48 Hours, and also on Crime Watch Daily. Here, she tells Crime Watch Daily about Samuel's behavior during the divorce. Ron Samuels was determined to hurt me. He was a monster before, but he became absolutely worse. I kept physical custody of the children. He wanted to take my children away from me. Heather's daughter, Lauren, remembered seeing law enforcement whenever Samuels picked up his children or dropped them off. There always had to be a police presence. It was during that time that Heather met her future second husband, John. He came from a wealthy family, an extremely wealthy family. His father was rumored to be the richest man in all of Minnesota. He was part owner of the Minnesota Vikings. John took Heather to the opera, flew her to exotic places. He lavished her like she'd never been before. He also filled the role as stepfather to a T, at least for a while. Heather's children adored him as much as she did. The couple wound up moving to Florida, to a place called Boca Raton in Palm Beach County. It was still hundreds of miles from the Panhandle, where Samuels lived. They expected to be safe there. All of Heather's happiness with her new life only exacerbated Samuels' jealousy. Lauren recalled a time when her father told her to tell police that John was sexually abusing her so that he could gain custody of her and her brothers. She declined. Heather knew her ex-husband wasn't just going to find someone and fade out of her life. In fact, he did remarry, but his bitterness kept building. Heather believed strongly that he was going to do her harm because he promised her he would. She went to police. I told him, my husband and I are getting death threats. I'm terrified that something's going to happen and he's going to kill me. The judge in the couple's divorce laid down the law. Samuels was given a deadline, October 31st, to pay back child support to Heather, or else he'd go to jail. On October 14th, Heather and John were at the intersection of Federal Highway and Yamada Road when rifle fire broke out. Here is a portion of a 911 call made by a witness, which was aired on an episode of 48 Hours. 911, do you have an emergency? Yes, we do. We have a uh, shooting in a car on North Federal and Yamada. We have uh, people with injuries. Oh, my God. She's, um... Please tell them we're on the way. They're on the way. They're on the way. 
I don't think she's bleeding. When the news got out, it became the biggest story in South Florida. Here is Boca Raton City Councilman Steve Abrams describing to me how astonished he and others were when they saw the story on the news. Here in Boca Raton, we do not ordinarily have uh, shootings occur in the middle of broad daylight. So it was certainly a shock to everyone to hear that information. And you just have to wonder at that point what went on. The first theory that entered his mind was that it may have been a drug hit. Either way, shootings aren't a way of life in the Boca community. Certainly not on that street at that hour. Well, we are a medium-sized city in South Florida, located almost exactly between West Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale. Uh, We're considered an affluent community, and uh, we have a very low crime rate and a good quality of life here. And so not a whole lot of this kind of crime occurs in both for its own. A witness gave police the tag number of the car from where the rifle shots were fired. The car did not belong to Samuels. The car belonged to an insurance agent by the name of Hugh Estes, who was an acquaintance of Samuels. Estes denied driving the car that day and said he had no idea who was driving it. Estes, police learned, was a drug addict who hung around other drug addicts. He wound up telling police that his crack dealer may have had the car, so the dealer was brought in for questioning, but he denied it. Detectives reached a dead end, until predictably, that dealer ran into more trouble with the law. He was charged with a felony, so police threatened to charge him with attempted murder in the Grossman case, and that's when he cracked. Eventually, the convoluted case started to come together. For starters, Samuels had sold his car dealership and was selling cocaine and stashing money in a bank in the Cayman Islands. That's how he got to know people in the drug world. Estes was paid up to $10,000 by Samuels to kill his ex-wife, but he spent it all on cocaine. Furious, Samuels told Estes he wouldn't give him any more money, so he went to another person in the drug trade for help. He got him in touch with another guy who got him in touch with a man by the name of Roger Runyon. Runyon was paid $5,000 up front by Samuels and was promised another $10,000 after the job was finished. His accomplices were paid in cocaine. The reasons detectives got all this information was because everyone from Estes to Runyon, including those middlemen, were offered immunity. It was a controversial move, but it was the only way to make sure Samuels went to prison. And it's what the Grossman family wanted. Here is Assistant State Attorney Alan Johnson talking about that deal to Crime Watch Daily. The Grossmans requested that we go ahead and give immunity to the persons who were the puppets in order to have a viable case against the puppet master. Due to his drug business, Samuels wound up jailed in Mexico and sentenced to six years for cocaine trafficking. Mexican authorities promised to send him back to Florida to be tried for his attempted murder charge once his time there was served. During the wait for Samuels' trial, Heather was experiencing the most unwelcome case of deja vu. 
A few years after the shooting, Heather's second husband, John, went through a change, one Heather could not explain. The loving husband turned into an abusive one. I don't know if he couldn't take what happened to me very well. Maybe three years after I was shot, he just became abusive. It was very scary. Heather was confined to a wheelchair, but John would beat her in the chest, spit on her, stab her with forks. One of Heather's sons even witnessed John throw dog feces at her. He was even physically abusive to Heather's children, which was the one line not even Samuels ever crossed. Heather had an annual medical bill of a quarter million dollars, and it was paid by John's father. So a divorce was not an easy decision for her to make. I was the perfect victim. I couldn't walk out and leave. But she did leave, and when she did, police had a strong case against John. It turns out he was never prosecuted. John died in 2005 of a heart attack. One year later, Samuels was tried. And what a trial it was. On the day Runyon took the stand, Samuels screamed out to him, quote, I'll meet you in hell, you son of a bitch. I'll find you one way or another. As jurors entered the courtroom, Runyon calmly responded, quote, You're right. I will go to hell. And you will see me there. The judge dressed down both men. If that wasn't dramatic enough, Samuels would later take the stand in his own defense. During cross-examination, Johnson asked him whether the custody case he was engaged in, the one that caused so much heartache to the couple's kids, was more about winning than anything else. It was never about the kids. Samuels denied that accusation and took offense to it. Eventually, Johnson brought the conversation back to Heather's physical condition. Johnson asked Samuels, quote, And you never wanted Heather to be a quadriplegic, did you? Samuel answered, quote, I never wanted her to be dead either. Johnson then retorted, That's exactly what you wanted her to be, sir. Dead. He repeated that last word, louder, for emphasis. The trial lasted two weeks. Jurors found Samuels guilty of attempted first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He remains incarcerated in Miami-Dade County. As for Heather, she has completed a book about her life and lives in Arizona. She has a website, friendsofheathergrossman.com, where people can read about her story, see photos of her and her family, donate money for her medical treatments, and reach out to her. Here is Heather's daughter, Lauren, telling Crime Watch Daily how inspired she is by her mother's strength. My mom is literally the best parent I could have ever imagined having or, or wished to have. She inspires me every day to be better, to be a better person, to work hard, to stand up for what's right. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week as I discuss a 20-year-old rape case out of Volusia County that remained cold until March when a DNA hit resulted in the arrest of a man in Wisconsin.
My guest for that segment will be former Volusia County Sheriff Ben Johnson. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.